Open your Bible with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, and we're going to read from verse. We're going to read from verse, we'll read from verse 14. We're only dealing with verses 21 to 26, but we're going to read from verse 14 through to 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body... What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith. Apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let us pray. Almighty God, it is our desire this evening to understand your word. In order for us to understand, Lord, we need you to work in us. We need your Holy Spirit to teach us. We need clarity, Lord. And so we pray that you would help me to be clear. That you would bring clarity to our hearts too. Help us to apply this message to our hearts and to our lives. For your name's sake we ask it. Amen. Is your faith real? How would you test it? How would you know Isn't it enough just to simply believe in God? Isn't it enough to believe that Jesus died for my sin and that I'm therefore free from sin's penalty? Or that Jesus died and rose for me and and indwells me? Is that all I need to believe? Is that what's involved in saving faith? Well, is that enough? James is telling us that our salvation depends on the type of faith that we have. The type of faith. He's answering the question we read in verse 14 there, what good is it, brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? He's implying here that there are actually two sorts of faith. One that does save and one that doesn't. And so the question for us, is what sort of faith do we have? Do we have the faith of the saving kind? Or do we have faith that doesn't save? This whole chapter, all of chapter 2, is really about faith. He's trying to demonstrate to us here that there's only one sort of faith that saves. 
This starts way back in James chapter 2, verse 1. He says there, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what he's saying here is, do not hold the true faith in an unworthy manner. Do not hold the true faith in an unworthy manner by showing partiality. He carries this on and picks it up in verse 14, which we've already read, which says, What good is it, brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And in verse 17 he says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And in verse 20 he carries on and he says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And then even in the passage that we're reading, verses 21 to 26, we read in 24, you see a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, he says in verse 26, so also faith apart from works is dead. And the first point that I want to bring out here is that justification by works, which is the phrase he uses there in verse 21, is saving faith. Justification by works is saving faith. He says there in verse 21, you know, he's not just asking, in verse 21 to 26, he's not just stopping by saying faith without works is dead. He goes a step beyond that and he says there, faith, it's not so much that we're justified by faith, he's re-emphasising here strongly that we are justified by works. In verse 21, was not Abraham, our father, justified by works? And you see in verse 24, was, you see then that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now this, of course, introduces a seeming contradiction to us, right? We've looked, you know, we're familiar with Scripture enough to recall verses by Paul saying, we hold, in verse, uh, chapter Romans 3, says, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So how is it that here, James can say we're justified by works? Isn't this some sort of contradiction? We also have Romans 5, we have been justified by faith. In Galatians 2, he says even more clearly, yet we know a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we're forced to ask ourselves a question, well how is it that we can have Paul saying we're justified by faith, and we can have James saying, no, 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 we're justified by works. There's some sort of contradiction here. The confusion and the difficulty here is caused by the way the word justified is used. Now we assume when we read this that James is using the word exactly the same way as Paul used the word. That is, uh, but if we look a little deeper, if we look into the scripture a little more, we find that this Greek word is used in two different ways in scripture. And I'm going to show you that. The first one, we've already read a couple of, which is Paul, which means to declare just, to declare righteous, to treat somebody on the basis of justified, you know, a justified situation before God. This is when God takes a sinner, wipes their 
sin from their slate and declares them clean. But that's not the only way that that Greek word is used. For instance, in Romans 3 verse 4, Paul himself uses that same Greek word in the following sentence. He says, he's talking here about uh, the the Jews nullifying the faithfulness of God. And he says, it can't happen, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words. In other words, what he's saying here is that the sin and failure of Israel does not make God unfaithful to his promises. In fact, it's the opposite. God is justified or is vindicated in his righteousness because of Israel's sin. And that's the other sense that this word carries, this idea of vindication or demonstrating something else. In the case of Romans 3, it's talking about uh, God is going to be shown to be righteous because of man's sin. In this passage, uh, another one is 1 Timothy 3. Uh, Paul says to Timothy, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh and he was vindicated in the spirit. It's the same Greek word. He's not using the word to mean justified in the positional sense. He's saying he was vindicated in the spirit. Uh, and then he uses, and then Luke uses the same word in Luke chapter seven, where we have Christ being accused by the Jews of not not conforming to their way of living. Right? So he's Jesus is living his way. He's meeting with tax collectors. He's meeting with sinners. He's eating with them. And the Jews are looking at him, saying, "Well, this is unrighteous behaviour. This is wrong." And Jesus comes back and he says, "Well, wisdom is justified by all her children." In other words, he's saying to the Jews, you can live your right way, and I'm going to live my right way, and the evidence of my life, the fruit of my life, will justify the way that I live, or will vindicate the way that I live. Now that's the same sense, it's the same Greek word, and so it's the same sense as what James is using here. James is not talking about positional justification. Instead, what he's referring to is the vindication of having already been declared righteous. That is to say that God has already declared this person positionally righteous, and we see in that person what we see in that person now in their works is evidence or vindication or a demonstration or a showing of that positional righteousness. It comes out. That's the point. He says here in verse uh, chapter two, verse. 18, doesn't he? He says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And James says to that person, will you show me your faith apart from works? And I will show you my faith by my works. That's the sense he's getting at here. Calvin said that James is speaking of the manifestation, not the imputation of righteousness. He's speaking of the manifestation, not the imputation of righteousness. As if he had said, those who are justified by faith prove their justification by obedience and good works, not by a bare and imaginary semblance of faith. James is saying that if you have faith, it should, no, James is saying that if you have faith, it must manifest itself in what you do. It shows itself in how you live. 
James is saying that justification by works is not optional, it's mandatory. Unless you have works coming from your faith, your faith is dead, useless, desolate. It's an inexpressible faith. An inexpressible faith is not saving faith. Right? We talk in First uh, Peter, you know, Peter talks about we've got joy inexpressible. Well, that's not the idea here. If you have faith and it's inexpressible, James's point is it's not faith. Faith is demonstrated. Faith, in fact, justification by works, in fact, is saving faith. Let's think about an example here. You know, if, let's say you're driving your car down the road and, and you notice the fuel light comes on. And you have to go to the store, which is a couple of miles away. And you get to the store and you park your car and you go into the store. And when you come out of the store, you notice on your windscreen a little note. And someone has written on this note, I put petrol in your car. You have no idea who did this. You've just come out and you've got a little sign saying, I put petrol in your car. Now, how are you going to know that there's gas in the car? Well, there's going to have to be some sort of evidence. And you've got two ways of evidence being, you know, being shown from your gas, right? The first one, of course, is that you're not going to run out of gas in 10 miles' time. But you don't want to wait that long. You want evidence of it before you have to stop at the gas station. And so the evidence is given, of course, in the fuel gauge. The fuel gauge moves from empty to full. And based on that, you know that the fuel has been put in the tank. And you can carry on. There's some evidence there. There's an indicator. If the petrol gauge doesn't move, there's no evidence of gas in the tank. And in the same way here, if you have no works, there's no evidence of saving faith in your life. So James asks, if someone has faith but not works, can that faith save him? He's saying that faith is dead faith. What sort of faith is your faith? Is it real and alive and visible in the things that you do? There's this old saying, and I'm sure you've heard it. If someone accused you of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If someone accused you of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to to prove it? This is the question James is asking. This is the requirement he is demanding that we, we must have faith that works in order to be saved. Because justification by works is saving faith. Therefore, he goes on to Abraham and he says that Abraham was justified by faith. His faith was working, therefore it was a justifying faith. And if we go back to uh, Abraham, we notice that when we get to the story of Abraham, it, it peaks, right? It climaxes with this sacrifice of Isaac. Abraham's faith pinnacled in sacrifice. Now, Abraham had been given promises. God had promised to Abraham to, to um, make him a great nation, to make his name great, and so he would be a blessing not just you know, to the people around him, but to all the nations of the world, all the families of the earth, right? So Abraham is given this great promise and then he's required to have a covenant with God. And so as he forms this covenant, the question is, will Abraham fulfil this covenant? Will he be faithful to the covenant of God? Will he trust in God? Will he believe him for these promises? Now the big promise, of course, here, uh, that is regarding that, there are several promises 
for Abraham, the first, of course, was to leave his country. The second one, of course, was that Isaac could even be born. And we remember, of course, that Isaac was born when Abraham was about 100 years old and his wife Sarah was 91 or thereabouts. You know, that's pretty... That's pretty hard. That's a pretty hard thing to believe. But he believed, and we read in Romans 4, that in hope he believed against hope. Right? He did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. But he believed, he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. But that wasn't the only thing, right? He was also required, you know, it was, he was told that through Isaac your offspring will be named. Through Isaac, your offspring. So, so when God says to Abraham then, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice Isaac on him as a burnt offering. Abraham's now got this contradiction in his head, which he's got to deal with. He's got to deal with, well, God, you said that through Isaac, my offspring will be named, and now you're telling me to destroy this man, to kill him. He's about 13 years old, right? He's not married, he's got no... No woman or anything like that yet. So, so you're asking me essentially to cut off that promise that you've given me. What does he do? Hebrews 11 gives us the answer. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Why did Abraham do this? Because he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did. In other words, when we look back here at James, James is pointing to Abraham who, was, who took God's promises and God's contradicting promise and believed them both and that God would work it out somehow. And he acted on that. He acted on that. That took incredible faith. That took incredible faith. He was asked to offer up his only son through whom his entire future was going to come. What has God asked you to do? We haven't had that sort of conundrum. We balk at the easier things, don't we? You know, we fall over when, when, we, when we feel a conviction as we pass a hitchhiker because we didn't pick them up. If you're anything like me. You know, we, we, we balk because we don't help our brothers and sisters. We see a brother or sister in need and rather than going to their, their aid and, and praying with them or, or giving to them or doing something for them, we say, be filled, be warmed. Francis and Edith Schaefer were missionaries in Switzerland during the middle of the 20th century. They received a letter to leave the country for having had a religious influence in the village of Champry, which is where they lived. With 30 days to leave, they, they turned to the Lord in prayer, sure that he had brought them there for a specific purpose that was yet ahead of them. As part of the requirements to avoid being deported, they were required to purchase a property. But they had no money. And... They had just resigned from the missionary organisation that had been supporting them, so now they have no income. So what do they do? Edith Schaefer recalls praying the night before looking at a house. She prayed, Please show us thy will about this house tomorrow and if we are to buy it, and send us a sign that will be clear enough to convince my husband, friend, Francis Schaefer, as well as me. 
send us $1,000 before 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. In the mail the next morning, there was a letter that included the momentous words, Tonight we have come to a definite decision and both of us feel certain that we are meant to send you this money to buy a house, somewhere that will always be open to young people. That letter contained a cheque for exactly $1,000. The property purchased became known as Labrie and has been hugely influential in the shaping of Christian thinking from the mid-1900s to this day. What about you? What has the Lord asked from you? How did you respond? Did you throw your arms up and say, I don't know how I can do that. That's impossible. It can't be done. Or did you get on your knees and trust him? George Mueller, of course, is another great example. A man who never told anybody his needs, but who just prayed and God supplied all those needs. Abraham's life was increasingly characterised by events that demonstrated his faith and his faith pinnacled in in sacrifice. His faith pinnacled in sacrifice. This is a real challenge for us. Do we trust the promises of God? Do we trust God with our family's safety? You know, I find myself, you know, we think about our children and, you know, one of the things you're concerned about in, in getting too far out and too dynamic in your Christian life is well, what will happen if someone comes to my house and does something to my family? Do we trust God to protect our family? Or are we, do we compromise? Do we do what our church friends do? You know, it's very easy. There's a lot of pressure on us to conform to the way that the people at church do things. But that isn't necessarily what God is asking us to do. God often asks us to do things that take us way outside of that, by which the same people in our church might think that we're strange. I remember when I was a young Christian, uh, a young lady, no, not a young lady, an old lady, uh, she was the daughter of missionary parents in Palestine. And anybody who came to her door was fair game. She would give them the gospel tract, she would tell them, she would ask them, do you know the Lord Jesus? And I used to think, man, that's strange. But that is the sort of faith that we need to have. That is the sort of active faith that demonstrates that we really trust God, that we really believe. How little are we willing to sacrifice? James summarises Abraham by saying in verse... Sorry, just before we go there... um, the results of Abraham. The results of Abraham's faith, right? His salvation was vindicated. You know, we see, it says there in verse 20, 22, faith was active along with his works, faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled, right? That says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. James paints, you know, the word friend in James appears in two places. It appears here, Abraham is a friend of God because he sacrificed because of his faith. And it appears in James 4.4 where it says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be friends of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Are we friends of God? 
by obeying him and living out our faith, or are we friends of the world by compromising? He summarises Abraham by saying, you see, in verse 24, you see a person is justified by works, and not by faith alone. He's not saying you're not justified by faith. He's saying that if you don't have faith that works, you don't have saving faith. Abraham was justified by works because he was characterised by faith. Now, at this point, we might object and we might say, you know what, I'm not Abraham. You know, this is like the greatest, you know, one of the greatest saints in all of the Bible, and you're saying that we have to be like that? That's unachievable. I can't do that. I'm not one of those great men of Scripture. But James expects this. After all, he's writing to Jews. He calls Abraham our father, knowing that the Jews look to Abraham as a forefather. He knows well that we can't measure up to Abraham. So he gives us a second uh, example. An example that is not a great person in terms of the Old Testament or the New. He takes us to a prostitute. Someone who's lived a life of sin. He gives us Rahab. And he demonstrates that Rahab was justified by works. And this indicated her salvation by faith. Abraham was justified, sorry, Rahab was justified by works, and this indicated her salvation by faith. When Joshua and the when the spies came into town, she welcomed them. Now so these spies weren't there to sort of have a bit of a party. They were there to undermine the whole city. They were there to, to figure out what the defences were like so they could have this place levelled. And she took them in. You know, you'd think that would be kind of a dangerous thing. The people of the town might not appreciate, you know, you harbouring these enemies who are there to figure out how to destroy you the quickest and easiest way. But she did that. Not only did she do that... The king comes, right? The king sends his guys and says, Have you seen these guys? I think they came here. She says, No, no. Well, they came, but no, I sent them off. I think they're just going down the road. You go follow them. And she hides them. Now, I don't know about you, but hiding people and then lying to the king about it is probably not a smart idea. Why did she do this? Why did she decide to put her life in danger for these men? Well, the text tells us back in. Uh, I'll read this to you, you don't have to turn there. Joshua chapter 2, she says there, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. She's heard the stories about what God did. She believes them. She believes who this God is. She recognises his majesty, his sovereignty. His, the fact that you can't do anything to stop this God. And she chooses, rather than to perish in disobedience, to throw in her lot with the people of God. Ultimately, Rahab betrayed her own people, her kinsmen, in fact, even her clients, because she believed God so much as to abandon them and seek refuge in Him. She did this because of saving faith. In Hebrews 11, the chapter on faith, saving faith, it tells us there, by faith, she worked, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. 
Does this act of, does this constitute salvation? No. This tells us, this, this demonstrates to us that salvation has already come. We find in Matthew chapter 1, you know, the genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, we find that she went and she married. This prostitute got married. And she settled down and she lived, you'd think, a far more godly life. She married a man called Simon. They had a, a son named Boaz who was found in the book of Ruth and she became the great-great-grandmother of King David and the an ancestor of Jesus Christ. She was changed. Her faith changed her. She worked. Her faith worked. She was justified by works which indicated her salvation by faith. Now, great works of faith is not just for the greats. It's not just for the Abrahams, the Schaefers, the George Muellers, the Elijahs, the Daniels, the Pauls, or the Josephs of this world. It's for all of those with saving faith. What sort of faith is your faith? Is it saving faith? Is it a faith that works? If your works are not evident, perhaps it is because your faith is not saving faith. Are you living by faith? Can people see your faith by how you live, the decisions you make? That doesn't need to be big things. Right? There's this, this man who, who once had some trouble with money. You know, it was kind of an idol. He lived according to it. And he determined that he would not ask for a pay rise or negotiate his salary with his manager because he didn't want to go near the subject of money. He was living by faith. He trusted God to, to deal with the money side. As a result... He didn't get paid as well. But he wasn't, his, his behaviour wasn't dictated by money either. It doesn't have to be big things. God is not asking us to sacrifice Isaac, but he might be asking us to sacrifice something. Are we willing to sacrifice for, for our faith? Is our faith, are we going to allow our faith to be a, a working faith, an active faith? James concludes this section with a simile. As the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Can your body live without a spirit? No. Neither can your faith be real without works. Let's pray. Father, this is a big call. This takes us far beyond what we are able. But we know, Lord, that we are not called to live by our own strength, but by yours. And so we ask, Lord, that you would fill us with your word, fill us with your spirit, because by these two things we can know how to obey you. And we pray, Lord God, that we would be obedient people, that we would not compromise, that we would not pass up opportunities to minister for you, that we would be willing to sacrifice, sacrifice our comfort zone, sacrifice conforming to friends and family, and that we would be willing, Lord, to honour you with all our mind, all our heart and all our strength. We ask this for your name's sake. Amen.